Welcome to the latest episode in the Paradise Talks pod series, where we offer insider insights on the creative industries. Our focus today is festivals. I'm your host, Emma Bartholomew. To say that this has been a difficult or unprecedented year for the festival community would be a cliche understatement. It doesn't come close to describing the stress or chaos that the pandemic has impacted on the sector. We've now moved into a period beyond a full year in which organisers, promoters, crews and artists alike are grappling with more uncertainty than we've ever encountered. As this podcast is brought to you by Paradise, the agency for entertaining brands, we can't expect or pretend to solve the mountain of issues facing the festival sector as we record this episode. From the daily cancellations to debates around COVID passports and the lack of government-backed insurance. But what we can do is to explore with hope the resourcefulness, creativity, innovation and bravery, frankly, of those operating in the festival industry as they approach solutions around planning and maintaining the conversation with their audiences, keeping their brands relevant and alive in these strange times. Through our conversation, we'll ask, is it possible for festivals to plan, promote and keep their audiences engaged and hopeful on shifting sands? Joining me today are my expert guests who I'm very lucky to be joined by. Biff Mitchell has vast experience in the festival industry from promotion and stage management to event conception, organisation and production across festivals including Beautiful Days, Mucky Weekender and Glastonbury. Lou Jennings is an advisory board member at Paradise, producers of this pod. She has a wealth of experience in the travel events, festival and adventure space. And Paul Reed is CEO of the AIF, the Association of Independent Festivals, which counts more than 80 festivals amongst its members. An organisation that has been lobbying tirelessly on behalf of its membership around vital issues such as insurance. Thank you all. That is a heartfelt thanks for taking the time to be here during one of the most hectic periods you must all have been through. Welcome to Paradise Talks. Now, I want to ask a really genuine human question uh, before we get into more technical details about planning and promotion. Um, Paul, I'm going to start with you. On a human level, how on earth are the festival community doing after the year we've had? Yeah, that's that's a very good question, Emma. And I think you, you summarised it very eloquently in your, your introduction there. Um, obviously, the effects of this pandemic, this crisis have been far reaching um, and profound. You know, festivals are a rather strange part of the economy in some respects and that they have a very limited window in which to, to generate income and stage their events, uh, sell tickets, etc. Um, obviously, we were shuttered for an entire year uh, last year. Um, and that that's had a devastating effect on many. There were many festival organisers that I think the average across our membership, people had, you know, £375,000 worth of sunk costs on average at that point. And, and 98.5% of them were not covered um, by any sort of COVID uh, cancellation, uh, communicable disease insurance coverage. 
Um, so yeah, devastating financially and professionally, but yeah, I think on, on a human level as well, particularly is the, the mood is particularly mixed out there, I would say. Um, so on the one hand, there is cause for some more cautious optimism. You know, we have a roadmap, we have a no earlier than date, um, which is, you know, we were lobbying for many, many months for that. Um, and we have had some government support to the Cultural Recovery Fund. That's reached quite a, a lot of our members, uh, certainly things like the, the VAT reduction um, and an extension on that as well have been very uh, welcome measures and we do have a live music uh, pilot this Sunday. Thanks for that Paul. I mean I can't really imagine the day-to-day changes and swings in how everybody must be feeling but at a time when speculation is rife we'll have to face the the horrible fact that some much-loved names in the festival space may not survive. How do you avoid I mean I don't even know if it's possible but can you avoid chewing the fat and actually move forward with planning that's feasible yeah I mean it's very difficult because there's a lot at stake here you know for an independent business um, to proceed with with those upfront costs and incredible amounts of capital I mean we found from a member survey the average cost of staging an AIF member festival is over six million pounds um it's it's a huge uh gamble really to to proceed with that um without any sort of insurance in place and obviously for these businesses it's not just a question of uh kind of hibernating and then being able to come back in the autumn you know this is it this is their limited window to stage their event due to the the seasonal nature of it so I think that's really challenging, and I think for many of them, it may not be a question um, of hibernating. It's you know for seasonal businesses such as festivals, I think that may mean shutting down your operations, laying off, laying off your staff, um, possibly going off to do something else. You know, I think there's a real uh, mental health angle to this as well. People in the industry haven't been able. Uh, to go out and, and stage events and build things and put on those experiences for people, which is what they love to do. So I think there's there's quite a lot of um, concerns there around loss of the uh, skilled workforce. And, and certainly those that can't happen this year will unquestionably need further financial support to get to next year. Um, you know, we've surveyed members and, and 76% of them said that um, they would need further support if they couldn't stage their event this year. So it's, yeah, it's it's incredibly difficult. Obviously, festivals only want to return when it's, it's absolutely safe to do so. No one wants to miss the opportunity of staging an event safely uh, this year. And it seems that we are progressing in terms of the roadmap and the vaccination rollout. be very interesting um, to see what this pilot, what emerges from this pilot, on Sunday as well. So no one wants to miss that opportunity, but I think as Biff was saying, um, everyone has a cutoff point at which, you know, they'll be getting asked for non-refundable deposits. Uh, We know that most festival costs uh, do hit around a month out from the event. So say you've got a festival in early July, you're going to have to pay 40% of your costs by mid-June which is, let's face it, when we'll have absolute certainty on this. 
um, because we've got the pilot, but the events research program itself is not due to report until mid-May. So those those timelines are bearing down on people, really. Um, yeah, I, I think that's that's where we are. I mean, there are some... Um, it was interesting yesterday just to see that from the pilot events in Spain, um, there were no signs of infection af- after the, the sort of pilot concert that they did, um, which is very encouraging in, in terms of being enabling and, and laying out what the correct uh, mitigations are. I mean, we, we've been doing a lot of work with government, DCMS, Public Health England. We issued some updated interim guidance um, for festival organisers to hopefully help with those um, planning conversations at the moment. Because, again, to just touch upon what Biff was saying, um, local authorities are, are in the dark um, and there's a lot of variation. There's a lot of different... Uh, risk appetites as well and festivals are needing to meet now with their safety advisory groups um, to to map out the event and and how they're going to approach COVID so yeah it really does feel like it's at a critical time. Yeah and I I was also um, feeling slightly positive when I heard that news about the test event in Spain let's just hope that um, Sunday's event can yield similar results and I guess I don't know the mental health question is so tricky because on the one hand giving yourself a cutoff point in some ways is some kind of relief of the burden of stress and uncertainty but on the other hand there's the stress of running towards that deadline so um, yeah such a it's just essential I guess that everybody's supporting each other within the community at the moment Um, but Lou, I wanted to ask you something um, in terms of keeping festival audiences engaged, because on the one hand, for organisers, it must almost be like the last thing that seems to be a priority, because things like, are we going to survive, would obviously be imperative. But we must keep the audiences engaged, otherwise there is no festival sector but those audiences are digitally saturated right now. So how does the festival community keep them engaged and excited to look forward without false hope? Is that is that possible? Have you seen any strong examples of that, Lou? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's so tricky uh, that we have to acknowledge that for everyone, but we have to remember that these audiences feel part of the brand that they've affiliated themselves to. And I think the best way of keeping their engagement and trust is, you know, quite simply to ensure any communications that do go out are very transparent and honest. I think it's the the kind of big, fluffy, promise-filled, unrealistic statements that could jeopardise that. And I think, you know, in addition, making sure the the actual humans behind the festival brands are speaking directly to the audiences also helps. Um, I mean, I think uh, the benefit of the uh, the festival industry has specifically is that by default, the customer base tend to be the type of people searching for the best experiences. So, you know, as long as in communications, it, it's clear as to why something isn't happening or why something is happening in the way it is or why there is a lack of clarity on a certain point. I think generally their expectations are, are met or appeased and they tend to understand um I think also showing um well we've chatted about this before Emma but showing a an empathetic approach to the current problem is something that I think uh 
keep also keeps the audiences engaged, especially at a time of digital saturation and you know, where possible diversifying in a way which very obviously meets the current needs of the customer rather than trying to be kind of passive or generic. Like it's much easier said than done. And, you know, it's totally, um, you know, it's obvious that it's not always possible due to resource or budgets or, you know, to the mental health point motivation. Um, but I think for the brands that have been able to show that very strategic diversification, it will pay dividends in the long run. And, um, and also build a stronger digital community for them than before. Um, a strong example of this for me would be um, the guys that I work with over at Love Trails Festival, who have you know, been forced to reevaluate and expand their kind of product offering from the one flagship festival event to a series of digital initiatives and micro event options. And they were based on very well considered strategies of, of meeting points that the community were currently missing and I think a good example of that would be the Love Trails Collective which is an online community support and knowledge tool um, and has proved hugely popular so it's been nice to see that off the back of such hard times there has been some kind of you know a, a positive response to a product created in a, in a kind of forced fashion if that makes sense. Yeah absolutely makes sense and I think um, the key things there for me from what you've just said are kind of diversifying or adapting let's say but within the capacities of us as human beings and and as a festival community to to the reality of what the situation that we're facing but also I'm a massive fan as a as a as a PR board I'm a massive fan of human to human communication that is honest and as transparent as possible and of course at the moment that can be really really tough but um yeah. I, Lou, did you want to add something there? Yeah, just that I think um, I think a massive positive that's come from the pandemic has been the, the more open conversations that are happening between brand to brand or festival to festival. Um, there's to, it feels to me there's just much more of a kind of common sense of like unity and and collaboration and I think if it would be great if that could be maintained going forwards because I think it will only benefit everybody really yeah absolutely I think in the wider music and entertainment industry in which we all live in various uh forms that the solidarity that's come out of this more than a year now has been one of the most positive things for me sense of community well I mean in our personal lives as much as in our working lives and there's a lot of crossover of course because we're all speaking to each other so often from within our own homes so we have to be supportive of one another um in terms of being supportive Paul I I've been thinking a lot about the as you mentioned the mental health the mental well-being of festival organizers crews every single human being that's involved in the festival industry um one thing that i've been thinking as a as a kind of outsider looking in is is the feeling of almost failure which i would hate festival organizers to feel if they if they're faced with almost being forced into cancellations i i would much rather festival organizers could think that they are actually surviving with a longer term view to bringing back the festivals that people love but safely and to something closer to the standard that people 
um, expect. We've seen some really heartfelt and honest cancellation announcements from festivals on social media, which is sometimes really heartbreaking as well. Do you think honesty and transparency of messaging when it comes to the communication between the festival organisers and their community of, of audience and festival goers, are they the biggest priorities um, when festivals are speaking to their ticket buyers? Um, yeah, absolutely, Emma. And, you know, I've had a meeting with, with some of our members recently who unfortunately either cancelled or on, on the verge of cancelling. And one of them said, you know, we, we don't look at it in terms of having customers. We have a community. Um, that community have been incredibly supportive of us throughout this. They've rolled over tickets, etc. A, a large part of that has to do with transparency and, and tone and, and knowing how to uh, communicate with your, your audience, which I would say, you know, all, all of our members know how to do that uh, individually. I think there's a huge demand for events out there i think we've seen that and you know once the roadmap was announced it was the first point in the pandemic where festivals um, started selling tickets and and some put out fairly cautious announcements i have to say you know there were not you know some festivals out there that have been fa fairly bullish in in their comms um but you know i saw examples of some statements that more or less saying um, we will do our utmost to deliver the festival. The obstacles still remain, but we hope to see you this year. That sort of thing, really. And still sold incredible amounts of tickets, you know, in some instances, 10,000 tickets in one day, off, off the back of fairly cautious statements. So I think, I feel like the roadmap has injected that confidence in this summer, but we could be in a situ situation whereby if the government don't really intervene on insurance, this, the summer will end up being fairly empty anyway. I think looking beyond that, I mean, one of our members said to me in a, in a call, you know, we've got to remember that beyond this, there's the next 10, 20 years of independent festivals and AIF and what we're going to do. And we're going to come out of this in, in a really strong position. So I, th I think it's, you know, very difficult for people, especially if they've already made the decision to uh, postpone to next year. But yeah, I think people are communicating with their audiences clearly and in a transparent way. They're being very upfront about practical issues uh, like refunds. You know, you can roll your ticket over or if you want a refund, absolutely, uh, there it is. And I think as a result, I mean, seen incredible amounts of audience loyalty. You know, this time last year, we were projecting that over 90% of our members were going to collapse due to refund requests. That that's you know this is how concerned people were. Thankfully, that yeah. didn't come to pass because audiences rolled over tickets. Festival subsequently got a bit of financial support. I appreciate that didn't that didn't reach everyone, um, but you know it it has put some in in a stable position. But primarily, that that didn't come to pass because of that audience loyalty that they've cultivated over many years. Yeah, I mean, I've I've also been observing the um, the habits of people to to roll over those tickets and to not be demanding their refunds. As you said, I think last year when the audiences were in shock, maybe they were a bit scared and and trying to claim refunds left, right, and centre. But um, just on the on the insurance question, because I know that this has been such a burning issue for the AIF, your members, the wider industry. 
Um, Paul, have you have you seen um, any activity within the within the actual festival goer audience side of the community engaging on social media or or lending their support to the campaign to get that um, government backed insurance? Or is that much more a conversation that happens between the industry and and the government through lobbying? I mean, I think audiences are aware of it due to the extent of you know media coverage that it, it's attracted. It's it's perhaps unlikely that insurance has become a hot potato issue, really, because it can sound a bit granular and a, and, a, and a bit technical. But I think audiences get it really that you know the cost of of staging a festival, a temporary event, a temporary town or city in a field is absolutely astronomical. Um, and, and it's a high-risk business at the best of times with incredibly tight margins. So I think audiences have a grasp of that issue and the situation quite simply just to distill it. And we've had, you know, over six months of dialogue with government around this. We've presented every shred of data and evidence that they have requested and more. Um, and the, the situation is seemingly stalled. It's at, at, at a bit of an impasse and it's looking unlikely that they're going to intervene but when you boil it down to it, it it's a market failure within the insurance market so i think that's an important uh, point to make because this isn't this isn't a failure within the festival market um it's within the insurance market it's due to the extent of payoffs um through you know business interruption insurance business interruption insurance um across various sectors that sort of destabilize the market in a way that it'll be unlikely to mobilize until at least next year. So insurers cannot offer a COVID-related cancellation as a result. Now, when you've got a market failure like that, quite simply, it requires government intervention. Um, and, you know, there's examples of this in governments across the rest of Europe um, you know, Austria, the Netherlands, Estonia, the, there's an increasingly lengthy list of, of governments who have realised this and stepped in. And in fact, our own government has intervened in the film and TV production industry to provide a government back scheme. Um, so there are ways of doing this. You know, we've modelled it. We've been through, had so, so many conversations uh, with government around insurance. And I think that audiences, I think also as well, um, all festivals that are cancelling are, are mentioning that as an issue, as a factor in the cancellation, um, if not the main factor. So I think the more audiences see that, they realise, oh, well, that issue is not specific to the festival I'm going to. This is something affecting all of them. And I think that will probably help audiences to to digest the news of, of cancellation as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're all learning so much more than we ever realised was involved in all of these um, elements. So I've got a question for you next, Biff, actually, which is there are elements, of course, that can be controlled to a certain extent within huge limitations like cancellation policies and the kind of internal um, deadlines and cutoff points that you mentioned earlier for decision making. But there's so much that can't be controlled. What what can festival organisers be doing as key priorities when it comes to keeping their brands alive in the eyes of a digital audience as things stand? I mean, there's just so much noise out there. Is there, is there stuff that organisers can be doing? 
Uh, well, last year at Glastonbury, we we put our own Glade line up together and put that out. It wasn't. It was part of the official Glastonbury thing, but it was we had no sort of real help from Glastonbury. We'd done it off our own backs. Um, that went very well. We haven't done that with any of the other festivals that I work on. Um, I, th- I think it's just you, you're really in the hands of the gods with all this. You, you, it's hard to know what people are thinking um, of, of you know the, the different brands. I mean, people seem to people seem to be very very loyal. Um, we noticed that with the amount of tickets that were um, uh, that, that were redeemed after last year, or asked them, you know, people asked for their money back. Um, we had very few on beautiful days, and probably less than twenty thirty on lucky weekender out of a thousand that have been sold. So you know, people have seemed to stuck to brand. You know, brand loyalty seems to be good, but um, I, I don't know how long that will last. To be honest. Yeah, it's uh, it's such a kind of murky horizon, isn't it? But I mean, I I do think that that brand loyalty and the support of the audiences is one reassuring thing. Um, Lou, the festival space is one in which Paradise works widely, collaborating closely with a range of festivals. So I just wanted to address a few quick questions to you within your advisory board role. How are you bringing in your own vast experience and understanding to to impact how Paradise can support festivals in this period? I mean, it's not so much a kind of agency-client relationship as a sort of supportive family relationship from what I can see. Um, Obviously, you need to be supportive in a period of looking to the future with cautious optimism and as much realism as is needed. So, yeah, can you tell me something about your take on that? Yeah, sure. By the way, Emma, never say quick question to me because I'm not very good at responding to quick questions. So apologies if it's a bit of a long-winded response. Um, But I guess, in short, it's from my side, it's a case of having been there and done that and you know failed a a lot of times and and therefore kind of learned a lot off the back of that and um I think in summary just understanding the importance of flexibility and um, agility right now for festival organizers um and anything that paradise can can do uh, and kind of plug in on making sure that that part almost doesn't have to be of a concern or worry because they know it's covered um with the right levels of flexibility around that um, I think having had the experience and understanding all the kind of complexities and moving parts involved in running such large scale operations, um, it's proved quite useful, I hope, in shaping how Paradise have, have kind of put together the support offerings at, at this time. Um, and just by having you know open conversations with various networks and festival organisers and understanding how we as an agency can go above and beyond and and not only complement I guess what what they're doing but kind of amplify it to the to the highest of standards possible um but in a way which you know reduces any kind of risk or or stress because that's obviously the two main things at the moment um yeah that's that's how I'd say I'm kind of bringing any kind of experience I've had to to the uh, AB role and it feels like this is the time to push boundaries. It's almost like there's no choice when the ballsy trailblazers might just take the lead in the festival space 
as terrifying as the whole situation is. How's the agency supporting its festival clients in pushing those boundaries and taking a new approach? I mean, you've talked a lot about agility. It's important both on a creative, but also on the festival side. Um, when it keeps, when it comes to um, keeping audiences engaged in plans built so much as we've heard throughout this chat on on shifting sands. Yeah, I think I think being able to look at any challenge, and again, I'm aware that this is um, much easier said than done. But from a from an agency level, encouraging a strategy that looks at the challenge ahead in a segmented way, and then providing a solution quite bespoke per segment is critical. Um, and for me, and you know, if I was in a position of one of our clients who was looking for that support, the most important thing for me is making those solutions digestible and not overcomplicated um, so that the organizers have clarity on, on how best to allocate you know, their resource or their spend. Um, so I guess in short, we've tweaked Paradise's proposition so that everyone can, can be confident in feeling agile and remaining agile. Um, we've identified, so we kind of looked at every segment that, that we could support on across strategy, creative, merchandise and production. And then we kind of considered, looked at the barriers to each, um, whether that be cash flow or committed cost, lead times, risk cancellations, everything that typically maybe wouldn't normally come into the lens of the creative agency. Um, and then we've tried to simplify the approach for the festivals we're working with, assuring them that they don't need to handhold the agency at the same time as that the team just get it and are flexible and are there to collaborate as if they're an extension of their in-house team. Um, just one final question for Lou, for you, Lou, um, before I give a final question to everybody. Um, I hate sometimes the notion that the next phase could be one of great opportunity. It just sounds so crass when so many have lost jobs, futures and so much more than that. And we must always remember that every single day when we're thinking about our current circumstances but um, what are you excited about in terms of, you mentioned there, you know, the beyond, you, both you and Paul have mentioned that, that there is a future ahead and it's bright and we, we, want, we desperately want to get back to it, both within the industry and on the audience side. Um, in terms of creative opportunities for festivals to keep the conversation going with their fans and their loyal audiences, what excites you? I felt, um, I mean, firstly, in no way dismissing, you know, all the heartache that's going on, that that stress, chaos, heartache and the struggles, that's all real and it's very happening. So absolutely not meaning to be insensitive to that. Um, I think putting that aside for one minute, the, the projects that we've been working on um, at Paradise um, have actually been really engaging and, and really kind of um, optimistic and, and positive to look for that beyond. And, you know, they range from, um, like running strategy sessions to help the client see past that mountain of challenge um, and to kind of trying to look at the I know hibernation is definitely a word that's overused at the moment but it is looking at how the kind of hibernation period is to be used tactically um, and that's been really exciting um, creatively supporting brands to avoid that kind of sea of sameness I think there's been a sea of sameness across lots of industries purely because people are lacking motivation to, um, well, totally understandably, lacking uh, um, motivation to be um, innovative. 
but the, the projects we've been working on has been encouraging that kind of more intuitive, well-considered content piece. Um, we've been working on reviewing and reshaping some of the psychologies behind visual communication strategies. And I think with the external optic that Paradise as an agency can bring, there is a fresh perspective um, with you know, a logical and creative lens um, to help steer through a pretty chaotic time. Um, and the final point I'd say on that is, you know, having worked with Paradise as a client on multiple projects, it's quite clear to me that festivals and everything festivals represent, whether that be celebration, community, shared purpose, etc., it really does form part of the agency's drumbeat and there's a genuine passion to deliver and push boundaries and have a really good time doing it to, to give that, you know, motivation and, and optimism for the future. Well, we can all get on board with passion and optimism. Those are those are the two things that I'm really carrying with me. Now, final question. Sadly, we're running out of time, but I have a final question for all of you. And Biff, I'll put this to you first, if you wouldn't mind. I'd love to know. I'm sure I'm sure I know the answer to this, but I can never assume do you still have full faith that the UK will continue its long-held and well, well-deserved reputation as host to some of the world's best festivals? Yes, without a doubt. Uh, I've worked on festivals right across the world, and there, I mean, there's some great festivals out there, don't get me wrong, of, of all different shapes and sizes, but um, it's something that we do well in this country. Um, we've got a, a, a massive infrastructure built around it which some of the countries don't you know um you know we've got access to everything some of the best stages you know actual physical stages in the world um you know our, our production side is world beating um and we've got some of the best uh, sort of production designers that come out of the uk especially on the dance music side um and so yeah i think we will come back uh, hopefully we're going to be back before other countries um i don't mean that in a bad way but again it will give us the chance to sort of lead the charge i believe yeah that's yeah i i completely agree with you as you say it's not about um wanting to step on other countries toes but if we can lead the charge then that's awesome I, Paul. I, Sorry, Sorry, carry on, Biff. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, th there is one other thing is is that's really going to shape things is yeah. is going to be bands, uh, bands and, and acts coming in from abroad. I think yeah. that that's going to have an effect. I and mean, we've lost two acts of beautiful days that we had booked. We've got another act from from Bosnia who said that hell and I water, let alone uh, a pandemic, is going to stop them getting there. And I believe they will. But I, you know, a lot of things with you know, I I, I travelled with the world with Carl Cox for four or five years. Um, I can't see it getting back to that level of traveling um, very quickly. I think there's yeah. going to be a lot of barriers put in the way, you know, um, and then that's not really even getting into Brexit, you know. Oh, how absolutely. You, yeah. Touring yeah. visas and that whole nightmare. Well, yeah. not, not even so much the touring visas, but, I mean, you know, I, I used to go to IB for probably two times a month, three times a month during the summer. Um, mm. I can't see that coming back. You know, yeah. this is we're going to be limited on what we can do. So that's going to have an effect. That's going to have an effect definitely on Ibiza, uh, the other holiday destinations, um, Croatia. You know, I, I think, we, you know, that's another unknown that we're going to come into after the pandemics. Pandemic's been dealt with. We're going to be suddenly hitting that. And I think the effect has been lost. Uh, the effect that's going to have has been lost in, in the pandemic. Mm. 
yeah i i think we are facing as as we keep saying a new a new normal a new uh landscape paul very quick um word from you on having faith that we'll come back strong as the leader yeah absolutely i mean i agree with biff i think in in the uk i think we've got culture defining festivals i think there's already um a renewed appetite out there from audiences for as soon as we can safely return so I'm not really at all concerned um, that audiences will come back. I'm not really concerned about, you know, I think a lot of festivals have the have cultivated that loyalty or that brand equity or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, yeah, I think we have to focus on what the next 10 years to 20 years is going to mean for the independent festival sector um, in consideration of, you know, most of that sector didn't really exist 30 years ago as well so we're, we're still a relatively new sector we're one that was growing pre-pandemic and i think that we will bounce back those that can you know that, that can survive this and, and get to that point i think there'll be a lot of um reflections beyond this i mean biff was talking about uh, transport there and getting back to similar levels i think a huge conversation as well at the moment within the industry um, is the climate emergency. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, that that could be a, a whole podcast in itself, as could the um, effects of Brexit on, on touring. So I won't, yeah. I won't go into either of those issues too much. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think that's it, it's probably given people a chance to pause and reflect is that, you know, the extent of their footprint. And although there have been a lot of good initiatives uh, in the industry and we've done a, a lot of campaigns around you know all of our members banning single-use plastics we've done a big public facing campaign around audiences taking their tents home but I, I think that the the live music industry in general needs to address that systemically and that's yet to happen but that's a conversation that is happening um, across the sector at the moment so I think that'll play into it but I think, like Biff, you know, it's going to affect things certainly for this year in terms of the restrictions. I mean, we've already seen a few small festivals that operate in particular genres, um, you know, that rely on international artists, really. They, they don't have a lineup within that genre for their audience, that they're quite niche and they're reliant on international artists. And, and that's played into part of the reason why they've uh, rolled over to next year as well. But I do think for other festivals, Perhaps it's it's not as talent focused, and I think audiences will be accepting of domestic lineups this year. I think people, you know, they know it's an exceptional year, and and, and even if that's a sort of a B lineup, if you like, I think people are just so keen to get out into the fields that that won't really matter so much. And we do ultimately have a lot of you know musical talent here in the UK on our doorstep. Like we're, we're so lucky to have that to be able to tap into for those events that can operate this summer. Absolutely. Well, I, for one, can't wait for that bounce back and to get back out into those fields. It's the experience that we're all missing. Lou, very quick final word from you. Yeah, I just wanted to take this opportunity, actually, Paul, to thank you and the team at AIF for the tireless work you guys do to support the industry, because I think it's a huge part of motivation for many at the moment. So I just wanted to reference that. Oh, thank you, Lou. Really appreciate that. Yeah, I think people oh, in the last year, certainly, you know, the support and representation 
um, that we've been able to offer, and the membership's grown actually, despite um, despite me having absolutely no time to approach anyone about joining. So, <laughs> I think, uh, hopefully, that that speaks for itself. It's you know, I think in general, not just AIF. I think in this sort of situation, you do people realise the value of, of trade organisations, and that you know, government only want to want to speak to one entity really. They don't want to talk to lots of of different uh, businesses. So, I hope we've been able to do that effectively it feels like the members been really supportive they're really engaged um and yeah i've been running it by myself for the last year actually so just about to um Have you? wow yeah just about to hire hire someone part-time um yeah i've been interviewing for that this week so that that'll be a good feeling to expand the team slightly to 1.5 people but yes thank you <laughs> Well, that's awesome. And yeah, absolutely second that. But I want to also give you all a massive shout out because as far as I'm concerned, people who work as hard as you all do are huge heroes and we wouldn't have a live music industry without any of you. So thank you. A huge thank you to my guests for this Festival Focus episode, Biff Mitchell, Lou Jennings and Paul Reed. I've been Emma Bartholomew and I'll be back soon with the next episode of Paradise Talks where we'll offer some more insider insight on another sector of the creative industries. To discover more about the agency and Paradise Talks, visit www.paradise.london.